Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Greenwalk and Lane's newest Patreon episode. I am thrilled to be joined by one of my first and favorite podcast friends, uh, the incredible Regina George Givens. <laughs> Hi, Regina. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's so good to see you, my friend. When I first started podcasting, you and Dylan were the very first people I started interfacing with uh, as far as other podcast hosts. Uh, you guys have always been so welcoming and so warm, and I'm so glad to call you my friend. Uh, tell people a little bit about yourself and your show. Okay, well, um, we started the House of X podcast right around the time the pandemic started, and so that was, <laughs> we had been transitioning. Um, we started out over on House of, uh, or no, the um, X's for podcast and had a really great time there. And then we decided we wanted to do something just a little bit different. Um, great group of guys over there. Um, if, so if you are not familiar with that podcast, that's where we came from. So we like to say that we're the X-Force to their X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Dylan and I decided to kind of just kick off our own little journey and just do something a little bit more on our own terms. Um, and it's just been really fun. And we have along the way made friends with a lot of other X-Men podcasters and everybody, it just feels like everybody in our community is just really wonderful. Everybody is just, it's just a really great group of wonderful people that we've met. There's um, a shocking amount of queer X-Men podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was first planning my show, I had to sit down and go, if I want to do something like this, how do I make it unique? And that's when I came up with the 1960s approach. Uh, but then it became like, let's do interviews and also reviews. And it's kind of become its own thing. You and Dylan focus more on the modern books, but also feature a lot of cosplayers and and people who don't often have their voices amplified. Uh, and then the community you built on Facebook alone is just extraordinary. <laughs> Definitely. Um, that's actually one of the things that I really love is that we do talk to different cosplayers and um, invite people who are different parts of the fandom. We've gotten away from that a little bit just because we've been so busy lately, but uh, we we're, we have a new group of wonderful people we're hoping to interview later this year. Um, but yeah, a lot of cosplayers that are really into X-Men. And of course, they're, they're into a lot of other fandoms too, but Ceremony, for example, um, is just really wonderful. She's a stunning woman and she does a killer Monet cosplay. Monet's one of my favorite characters. So the first time I laid eyes on her, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> she just absolutely nailed it. Um, and she's just a, such a fun and welcoming person too. So that's definitely one of the things that I really love about what we've been doing the last couple of years. I know you well enough, although we've never met in person, we get to at the Uncanny Experience later this year, which I'm thrilled about. Uh, I, I know you've been through a lot of life transitions. Just since I've known you, there's always a bajillion trillion <laughs> happening. I would love to hear a little bit of your journey as kind of an X-Men fan into a quasi-professional, because running a show like this is no small joke, I know. <laughs> 
Yes, actually, um, I feel like sometimes I'm like, maybe I should write a book. But then I was like, there's just, I'm just really a boring person, but I've just been through <laughs> a lot of crap. <laughs> so um, for those people who don't know me, um, I'm Mexican-American. I was born in Texas. My mother's family is from Texas. Her grandparents were from Texas. So we're like those, you know, that kind of lineage on her side. And then on my father's side, um, I am the granddaughter of um, immigrants. So I have kind of this weird little background with that. Um, but then my parents got divorced and I moved away from Texas. So I didn't grow up within my own community. I grew up in Alabama, which for a little brown girl was really weird because you're around this group of children who have never known anything other than black people and white people. And so they tried to convince me for a long time, Texas didn't exist. <laughs> So that was my introduction to kind of being an outsider. <laughs> so they just, they had no conception of what it meant to be something other than black or white. Um, so that was interesting. Um, I wasn't allowed to play with certain children because of the climate there during the early 1980s. Um, so, you know, I couldn't always be friends with the kids that I wanted to be friends with. So again, I've kind of got this background going. Um, but my stepfather, which is the whole reason we moved to Alabama, was just a really wonderful man um, in a lot of respects. And he's the person that actually introduced me to X-Men at the earliest possible stage. He had all of these X-Men comic books, hit a giant box of them. Um, <laughs> he had, I guess the first one that I really noticed was um, one of the Inferno covers with Madeline Pryor. And I've been in love with Madeline Pryor ever since. I was just like, who is this sexy bitch? Can I say bitch? <laughs> you can say bitch. You can also say under boob. <laughs> yes, because I was like six and I was just like, this woman has a giant under boob and it's hot. <laughs> but, um, you know, I kind of, he couldn't continue collecting comics once he became a father. And so he ended up having to sell his comics collection, which my mother later was like, I was dumb. <laughs> Cause I think he actually had like the first X-Men comic ever printed. And he sold that in his box of comics. Mm. Um, and my mom was like, boy, was I dumb. I was like, well, I'm not going to say you're dumb. He just didn't know. <laughs> so when I was in seventh grade, we moved back to Texas and um, my accent was very different from everybody else's accent because again, I grew up in Alabama. So I didn't say like daddy, I said daddy. And I said, sugar. <laughs> I said, Rogue, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> I said bread. <laughs> so I just had this drawl and the other kids were like, you look like us, but you don't sound like us. Where are you from? So they called me the Mexican hillbilly. So again, I went through this whole process of being othered. Um, but a friend of mine was, he had some X-Men trading cards and we were just goofing off in science class and he was showing them to me. And the first one he showed me was Cerise. And the second one he showed me was Betsy Braddock as Psylocke. And I was like, these are some sexy bitches. Like, where can I find out more about these bitches? <laughs> And basically, ever since then, I have just been a huge X-Men fan. Um, and it's just really been a wonderful journey. Um, they really got me through some really difficult times. 
Um, and I just, I can't even express to you at times, just holding those books in my hands was survival. Um, when Monet was introduced, I was a teenager. And even though we don't have the same ethnic background, we I felt like I could relate to her on a different kind of level. And so when I was at school and I was feeling maybe less confident, I was a nerd. You know, I had the Coke bottle glasses and I was real skinny and I loved like books and reading. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was that nerd. But um, when I was feeling less confident, I would put on my Monet face and I would strut down the hallway and I just drew strength from that. So, so that's kind of been my unofficial journey as an early fan. Um, and then when I became an adult, I started connecting with other fans on Facebook. And, you know, my dad passed away several years ago, but, um, you know, I talked to him and I just feel like he he would be so proud of me. <laughs> Um, the transcendence of the x-men franchise to represent people who have felt othered is such a beautiful thing to me i mean our stories could not be more different but also not more the same i i grew up in the uh like hillbilly country ozarks as a mormon kid and was literally the kid that like you can't go play with that kid because mormons have horns and they're evil and you know like like southern baptists and mormons don't mix (laughs) And then moving to the Rocky Mountains as the queer guy, uh, being queer here is kind of like being Mormon was there. I also grew up with a drawl. I also grew up very isolated in my family and X-Men were the refuge for me. I think the characters I attached to were different. It was Cannonball and Cable. And uh, we we look for characters that represent us and, and what we feel. Uh, this is preemptive, but I'm going to totally invite you back uh, later this year or next year for a St. Qua family episode, because we definitely need to talk <laughs> about that craziness. <laughs> yes, I learned way more about them than I didn't know that I didn't know recently, so. It's a crazy story, that family. They're nuts. Uh, they they parallel the Summers for me as one of the most, like, top five complicated families in the X-Men franchise. Definitely. Uh, they're, they're crazy. Uh, but I do love that character. I know this has been, I, I listened to a lot of your show, and I know this has been a really fun few years for you, uh, personally, seeing a lot of characters and a lot of women, uh, characters of color and women be featured in more prominent ways. I love hearing you talk about the art portrayal of characters of color and kinky hair <laughs> and big lips. And like you have a you have a perspective there that has made me look at those areas of art and portrayal so differently. Uh, I'm Storm being the prime example, obviously, but we're seeing so much incredible content and and to hear these voices amplified right now is a really wonderful thing. Uh, I don't you could you could speak on that if you'd like. <laughs> well, you know. I think about it sometimes because a lot of people make this assumption. um, My children are biracial and my best friends typically are people of color, primarily black women. Um, So, you know, they'll say, well, you have a a vested interest in, you know, representation and in these types of portrayals because of your personal connections. And I would disagree because I think that I want it for everyone, regardless of my personal connections. And even if I didn't have these personal connections, I think I would still feel the same way I did before I even had these connections, (laughs) you know, and it's the same thing with like LGBTQ characters and the people that I love that are, you know, lesbian or gay or trans. 
you know, even before I had those connections, I wanted the correct representation for them. So I think that just comes with, you know, just being a, a person who strives to see that and to be inclusive. And I don't always get it right. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but I try and I take the time to listen, even if I don't necessarily agree. Um, I do want to hear people talk about how they think or what they experience because my experiences are definitely not going to be the same as theirs. So I need to listen to those voices. And I think that's just really important for us as fans is, you know, if somebody is criticizing an artist's portrayal of, for example, Sunspot, which I do every time I see him, sure. <laughs> um, I think it's important to listen to those voices. Um, I recently um, had somebody kind of just do a, I don't want to say a personal interview, but um, just kind of conversate with me a little bit about his portrayal. And they were like, you know, I wish you would ease up on that just a little bit, because as somebody who is biracial, I think that Berto looks more like me than more than what you, your perception of him should look like. And I was like, that is completely fair. I completely understand what you're saying. And it makes sense because we do know that his mother is apparently a Caucasian woman. She was an American woman. She had red hair. Um, and he was portrayed from the get-go as very dark-skinned. But that's not out of the realm either. So I was like, you know, I just feel like once we are introduced to a character, that's your baseline for how they're supposed to appear. And it's not to say that other characters can't have a, you know, a derivative. But for him, I think it's just really important that he is portrayed the way we first saw him. Absolutely. And I know you and I have both had the opportunity to interview Bob McLeod, who was Correct. the original character designer. And he originally drew the new mutants to not look like pretty superheroes. Rain was that awkward red haircut that was short and <laughs> Cannonball was lanky and awkward and uh, you know, all of the characters kind of got anglicized a few years later. Roberto was dr drawn with very dark skin and suddenly you see everybody kind of with muted color palettes and looking very hot. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, they're growing up and the times change, but I, that, that's one that's really interesting. And it, and it is important always to see characters that look like us in the books that we are right. reading. Uh, let me use this as an awkward bumping off point for our conversation. <laughs> the New Mutants being a series that I, of course, adore and love, eventually became the book X-Force. Uh, they graduated and became the mercenaries who were willing to do the things that the X-Men would not. That concept of X-Force has been reinterpreted a number of times. They were an assassin kill squad for a while, led by a Wolverine. Uh, they've been uh, kind of the underground subterfuge team. Uh, the current team of X-Force is kind of like the CIA or the KGB of Krakoa. And it is a team of all very unlikable, irredeemable characters, some of whom we love and some of whom we hate. <laughs> but the one we hate the most is the Beast. <laughs> Tell definitely me, that, that's why it's an awkward transition I kind of built that into a beast uh tell me about your relationship with the character Hank McCoy well I think like most people of my generation um we were introduced to Beast through the animated series mm -hmm. and when I started reading he actually um 
I guess just had recently come back to the X-Men, but he wasn't really prominent when I first started reading. He was just kind of a background character. Yeah, that first season, he's like in jail for a good portion of it. Right, yeah. right. Um, so the animated series really influenced my perception of him. But once he was featured more prominently again in the comics, you still got that same sense of this kind of joyful character. He's not letting, you know, his status as a mutant get him down. He's got blue fur, and even though he has periods of sadness about it, he tries really hard to be, like, a good person, and he tries really hard to, you know, just be decent and and still have a love life and encourage his teammates, and then we are introduced to Dark Beast, and... <laughs> I remember the Age of Apocalypse was just so horrifying. The body horror that was featured in that um, other universe. And then Dark Beast makes the transition into our 616 timeline. And, you know, Hank is captured by him and he's like imprisoned by him. And I remember there was this wonderful issue where he is, you know, he's imprisoned, he's tied up. He's trying to get just a little tiny drink of water. That just really resonated. Like, I was so sad for Hank McCoy. <laughs> and some 20 odd years later, I'm like, fuck that guy. <laughs> so Hank to me, and I think I'm pretty confident it's been a long time. You were on the episode where we did the trial of Hank McCoy on my show. It feels like forever ago. Right. When I did my full read through of his chronology, Hank McCoy is a character who every 10 years or so seems to shift for me. Uh, but he's consistently portrayed uh, with a couple of contradictory areas of himself that are really fascinating to me. So he starts out as like the very booky athletic guy who really has a lot of self-importance about him. He uses big words uh, he's, uh, I, I did a, a long episode on this channel about Vera Cantor with Sarah Century for, it was, that was my two and a half hour episode <laughs> where we talk about, you know, what it's like for Vera to date a narcissist for all those years and how he's very self-absorbed at, at a certain point, he starts experimenting with science and he has this idea of the greater good about him. It's okay for me to tamper with blank because of blank. And there's always terrible consequences. Sometimes it turns out okay. The first example we get of this in the books is when he shoots the gun at Eunice the Untouchable, who can then no longer control his force field and is going to starve to death and, and die unless he uh, begs for the cure, you know, basically. Uh, when Beast turns blue and furry, we get uh, a big example of that. When Beast time travels into the present during the Bendis run, and he starts messing with magic and becomes like the big white demon furry guy, uh, <laughs> more unintended consequences. Then there's the bouncy happy Beast, right? Like we get the Avengers version of him, where he's so caught up in his own self-importance uh, he's just emphasizing everything that's great about himself. And he suddenly gets all this attention from women. And he dates Trish Tilby, who's the worst. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's just, he becomes this very complicated, self-absorbed kind of person who really thrives on attention. There's a there's an issue, we talk about this in the Vera episode, where he hasn't spoken to Vera in months. And he goes out with her. She's supposed to be his girlfriend. He takes her out to dinner and he's basically like, 
you know, look, I, I, I know you love me and I know I'm the best thing ever, but I'm going to be too far away to keep dating you. And by the way, remember how I ghosted you for the last few months? That, that was your fault, not mine. And also I gave you, here's a goodbye gift for you. And he, she opens the gift and it's a, a watch with like a Mickey Mouse watch, but of the beast. Like he gives her, he gives her a picture of himself like that's a joke and then like bounces away as she's crying in the restaurant and that scene with beast for me almost typifies more than anything uh what he represents this this thin veneer of like i don't love myself but i need to be the most important person in the room but also he's a super genius right like he's very narcissistic about his own self-importance in a way that kind of only xavier is also i would uh, agree with that uh, I, I know I'm kind of going on for a second here. Then he becomes the scientist guy. He becomes the tech support guy for the X-Men. He's trying to cure the legacy virus. Uh, Dark Beast comes around and Dark Beast is the epitome of what it means to have no morals and guidance. And over the last 30 years, we've slowly watched Beast become that character. He has made deals with devils. He has uh, uh, weaponized the legacy virus against alien races. He... Uh, did the time travel thing where he nearly broke the space-time continuum because he was pissed at Cyclops. Like, Cyclops, you made me mad, so I'm going to teach you a lesson, and it nearly breaks reality. That infamous image of the Watcher appearing in his room and calling him an asshole and, like, disappearing. Classic. Uh, and then they take that character, and this is the guy that they put in charge of the CIA on Krakoa, and we're seeing that explored in the comics to a fascinating degree now so i'm summing up a lot of history in, in, in like a couple paragraphs here but what what are your thoughts on this the psychology of this guy you know again i had this image of beast just being this really sweet and wonderful person and i understood his despair when the legacy virus virus was ravaging the mutant population like i understood why he felt so desperate to find a cure but he just completely went off the rails. And I would never have imagined back then that, you know, in the far future, when I'm much older <laughs> and a mother and a grandmother and all these things that I am now, that he would have transitioned basically into being worse than Dark Beast. Because Dark Beast basically grew up in a society where there were no rules for mutants. And our beast knows that there are rules and that there's things that you don't do to harm people and that the ends don't justify the means, but he's taken it upon himself to commit genocide and to unintentional genocide, but genocide <laughs> nonetheless, but he wasn't sorry. Yeah. That's really, you know, and it's not that genocide, whether intentional or not is okay, but he was like, yeah. Okay. And this man has no problem killing. He doesn't want his time to be wasted by people in need. He sees refugees as an inconvenience. I mean, there, there's a lot of like Kissinger to this guy yes. at this point. Yes. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, and, and we've seen him literally, you know, I didn't, you know, even when we pushed the envelope with the whole genocide thing, I did not imagine that we would get to a point in the comics where... He would do experiments on people and mutants and like holding them literally in medical prisons. And I was like, oh, this is exactly what Dark Beast was like. You literally just, you're him. You're, you're, well, he, you're him now. <laughs> he has violated Wolverine 
in the worst way that Wolverine has ever been violated in that he's wiped his mind and used him as a weapon, which is the worst thing you could do. And when it comes from someone that he trusts so implicitly, uh, Beast is now uh, in the current comics as we're recording this, there's multiple clones of him that are all plotting. They're all using clones of Wolverine as weapons. There's going to be a big story. I, I've read enough of Ben Percy at this point. There's going to be a big story where Beast is finally taken down, but there's going to be dire consequences. There's going to be, he was going to save the day doing something awful and they're going to stop him. And like the fall of X is going to happen as a result. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be something <laughs> yes. awful, but he's, he's an interesting character. When we look at his love interests as well, the two women he's most associated with are Trish Tilby and Abigail Brand. And what kind of man dates <laughs> those kinds of women? It's <laughs> you know we get this wonderful moment after he loses his eye, uh, where he meets with Brand again, and she's like, "Can I touch it?" <laughs> like, girl, like, and you know he's like, "Yes." <laughs> she's just she just like fingers his eye hole like, <laughs> but you know that really I think was symbolic of how really far he has come because yeah. in the era when he first changed himself to be blue and that was a moment of ultimate hubris right mm -hmm. he was like shit now i have to live with this problem but now he's fully leaning into every terrible thing that he's done he's just like yeah stop me go ahead and yeah. try like you've gone full sinister at this point <laughs> I have a special affection for like Avengers Beast and like early X-Factor Beast who's bouncing around using big words and being all cute and I have to like grab the dictionary to see what he's saying. He's <laughs> annoying sometimes, but I do enjoy that version. But this morally complicated version, the guy that keeps pushing the limits and the X-Men keep giving him space to keep doing these shitty things. Uh, the other parallel with this on X-Force is it's a team of all terrible characters. Some of them I love, but Domino and Deadpool are mercenaries who kill people for a living. Quentin Choir is the most annoying, self-absorbed <laughs> narcissist. Uh, Wolverine's an assassin. Omega Red is a fucking serial killer, but Beast is the worst guy on the team. He's, yes. he's the worst one. And that's really and, smart, amazing storytelling. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I think about it, and when we like back in the day when we have the Dark Phoenix saga going on, you know, he makes this decision to erase the tape and to not tell the Avengers what's happening. And he goes to help the X-Men. And I just feel like, you know, there's all these little moments that have been built on throughout his character progression where we see who he can become. And I just never expected it to come this far where he is worse than Deadpool. And I mean, the thing about Deadpool and Domino is that even though they do some terrible things, on some level, there is still a conscience. There, there are some things that they just won't do. Yeah, It's rare, but we have seen them make decisions over and over again. Okay, I'm not going to do that. That's a line. And I just don't think Beast has those anymore. <laughs> So we had to open with this conversation. I do a number of these family-focused episodes on this show. My Patreon channel is meant to give light to characters that don't get a lot of light. Uh, so I've done this for Storm's parents and Kitty's parents, and, and I'm getting ready to do Cyclops' parents soon. I've done Jean Grey and Bobby's parents. Uh, in order to understand the Beast's parents, because they are very ancillary, infrequently used characters that are part of his story, but it's almost 
really well not almost it's really crucial for us to draw a through line on this changing character over time uh, in order to understand these stories because when the McCoys are used it's not always super consistently and you have to stack the stories up to make these characters work but these are characters I would love to see uh, further explored. I was thrilled when you agreed to take these characters on with me. I'm like, who's going to do Beast's parents with me? <laughs> so I was really surprised. Uh, before we even jump in, Regina, what was it like for you to visit uh, these kind of obscure characters uh, from this space? It's an interesting. It's an interesting exercise. They are, you know, again, they're they're not very prominent they're not very well highlighted but like when you compare beast parents to bobby's parents or iceman iceman's parents you know it's i love that we get this really wide variety of parents of mm -hmm. these mutants and different reactions that they have and then how do they deal with their children as adults and i think that's something that you know, we're going to see as we kind of progress through this discussion, Bobby's parents, well, his father was terrible. <laughs> and he just had this whole, you know, we have seen them dealing with the terribleness of Bobby's parents. And then what does it mean to forgive our parents when they've done something wrong for us? But yeah. then also, how do the parents deal with their children when their children have done something wrong? And I really want to know what would Edna be doing to Beast if she knew what he was pulling right now. That is a, we're going to get there at the end. We need to talk at the end about what story we want yes. to see. And that is certainly at the top of my list. Uh, if we take the queer analogy or the difference analogy, uh, I think it's important to frame this conversation this way as well. If you have a kid who is different, how do you treat them? And both the Drakes and the McCoys are two examples. The Greys, to a lesser extent, but they're examples of we occasionally see from the parents' perspective how they're really struggling to accept their kids as a mutant. Uh, the McCoys initially accept Hank wholeheartedly, which we'll talk about. But then we get some scenes where he turns himself blue and they're kind of not okay for a minute. <laughs> and then they learn how to be but then there's an evil version of him running around. And we have to, we, we only have a few stories to be able to kind of figure out their journey. But the uh, the P-Flag mom is kind of <laughs> in the McCoy in, in, in her own way. I'm getting ready to do an episode next month on uh, the, the Guthrie's mother, uh, Lucinda, who was the ultimate P-Flag mom. I fucking love her. She's oh, yes, great. definitely. She's so great. Uh, but we'll uh, we'll talk about her another time. Uh, so let me introduce the McCoys. Uh, we have Norton McCoy and Edna Andrews, and we're going to go chronological here. X-Men 15, it's one of their original stories. Beast has been captured by Bolivar Trask and the Sentinels. They put him underneath a psycho probe, and uh, the, the cover promises you get the Beast's origin story, such as it is. But uh, reading Beast's words, he's forced uh, to relive his memories here. And he basically says, my father was an ordinary laborer at an atomic project. I probably gained my power due to radiation, which affected him before I was born. I'll never know for sure. One day he lost his job. And so we moved to another city. The neighborhood bullies picked on me but I, because I was a new arrival and also because of my anthropoid physique. See, you have to look, you have to look up words. <laughs> but I myself did not yet suspect the powers I possessed. And uh, we, we see him kind of being teased and jumping out of the way of a car. And he says, and that was when I first realized I possessed powers greater than any normal human. But after that, it was no better. Where they had once made fun of me, now they feared me. I became lonelier than ever. 
And uh, this is an era of comics where we were very caught up in the atomic age. You go listen to my episode on the Cobalt Man with Phil Ewing. We talk at, <laughs> about this in detail. But this idea of uh, the mutants had to come from somewhere. So we get multiple stories, but mostly beasts about his dad was exposed to radiation. And that's what caused him to be uh, a mutant, which is an interesting need to try to kind of explain that space. Uh, uh, we're going to delve into Beast's parents in their first feature, but do you have comments on that very first story from X-Men 15? You know, when I went back to read that, I guess it was a little bit of a shock um, because most of the characters that we know don't really have an explanation as to why they could possibly be a mutant, but we specifically get the story with Beast. And I found that to be an interesting choice. Like, so they're like what what is it about this era and this fear of atomic um energy that prompted this specifically for beast like we don't get that with gene we don't get that with cyclops we get that just for him but i do think that um as a cultural touchstone it's nice to have this little detail about that character because like kids nowadays oh god i sound old <laughs> but they just have no concept of like like what are you talking about like why would that even be scary yeah and they just have no concept of things that we grew up and that we were familiar with so for this to be featured as part of his character i found to be a very interesting choice i'll keep this a little more simple for this discussion uh by the way professor x's roots are also in atomic energy a little bit they are. died in an atomic explosion <laughs> uh, i'm gonna do one of these on the xavier's sometime too which is its own story uh, but we uh, to to recap this very quickly. Nineteen nineteen forty four, the World War II is ending, and the the atom bombs are dropped in Japan, and it changed everything. And suddenly, every country is racing to be the first one. Plus, we're starting to experiment with nuclear power, which has resulted in major disasters around the world uh, more than one time. Uh, but we uh, we have this idea of using this as an energy source, but it's also very dangerous without regulation. So there, there's a, there's some interesting tie-ins. There's a movie, and I referenced this to you. Have you seen the movie The China Syndrome? I didn't watch the whole thing. I did watch part of it, and then I was reading a little bit more about it. And, you know, it's really interesting how their perspective is and how it's kind of changed over time. Mm -hmm. Um but, you know, we do have all of these little cultural touchstones that I think have kind of been lost because, again, like modern children, they don't know <laughs> about this stuff. They don't understand the fear that our parents perhaps felt or that even we felt, you know, like they had like all of these drills and things. And so they're familiar with a different type of drill. But we always have, I think even now, we still have this kind of fear about what other countries could possibly do to us. And that's kind of coming back into vogue right now. <laughs> the fear of nuclear um, war is a really big definitely. Deal. Look at the definitely. origin story of the Hulk, who's one of Marvel's first characters. It's the exploded bomb turning a man into a monster, which has been revisited, of course, there a bajillion right. times and with so many characters. Uh, so focusing here, The China Syndrome is a, a, a movie that came out much later than Beast's origin story, but it's a 1979 film, uh, Jane Fonda, Jack Lemmon, Michael Douglas, and it's about nuclear power plants and what can happen when those nuclear rods, I do not speak this language, I am not a <laughs> nuclear scientist, but when the nuclear rods don't stack up correctly or there's not the right temperature or coolant or whatever, they can literally melt over and Chernobyl can be the result. 
So we we see this really interesting story, and there's but there's even been recent documentaries on these concepts that you could look up. Uh, but this is very much tied into Beast's origin story. So in uh, in the mid '60s X Men books, they were doing five page backup features on the characters, giving us their kind of childhood origins, which is kind of a cute thing. It was fun to revisit on my show in detail. Uh, but the Beast gets the featured story in the backups of X Men forty nine through fifty three. Uh, this is where we get the awful villain, the Conquistador, uh, who's the worst, uh, one of the worst X-Men villains of all time. Uh, but this, the story basically begins with the wedding of Norton McCoy and Edna Andrews, and they move to a little town where there's an atomic energy plant, and Edna's like, oh god, it's so desolate out here. But uh, Norton has a new job, he tells her everything's going to be safe, I'm working at the atomic energy plant. But the, the plant director, Paul Marlin, is notified that the breeder reactor, I, I don't know what that is, <laughs> has gone wild, and they can't get the carbon rods lowered in time. So they call for the chief electrical engineer, but they're facing disaster. So Beast's dad, Norton, puts on a radiation suit, uh, risks his own life, and saves the day. Uh, Edna rushes to his side once he's stable uh, and tells him he needs to find a new job or a new wife. And I get it, girl. <laughs> Uh, and so they move to a new town and Edna is pregnant. And this is kind of the initial story we get for them. It's very 1960s. It's very cute. Uh, what are your thoughts on this introduction? You know, I actually really love this because a lot of times in fiction, uh, when you have a monstrous child, it's the woman's fault. And in this case, Edna was not really exposed to whatever he was exposed to. She was just the recipient. <laughs> And we do know from, you know, newer studies with science, how much a man's sperm can actually influence what happens with the child. And um, like men, if they're over a certain age, um, there are certain um, chromosomal changes that can result um, in the child. And so it's just really interesting that this was even addressed <laughs> that, hey, you know what, this is probably the fault of his father. <laughs> You know, this this mutant gene that popped up probably was triggered by his work and then what he did, you know, trying to be heroic and rescuing his co-workers. This is never stated on panel, but part of the interesting thing that stands out for me, which could be interesting to explore, is what would Beast have been born like without his father having been exposed to radiation? Would he have been a mutant? And if so... Would he have powers in the way that they work out? Uh, would he be hyper intelligent? Did this change his origins at all? And which is, it'd be an interesting concept to explore, like an alternate reality story, perhaps. right? Or like a what if story, you know, yeah, that yeah. would be so fun. <laughs> what if Beast's dad, and people are like, what? Beast's dad. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so the doctor warns Edna that there, uh, because of Norton's exposure to radioactivity, it may result in strange genetic consequences. He yells, the child might not be normal. Fuck that word, normal. <laughs> Uh, and sure enough, the baby is born with super huge hands and feet. He's uh, he's living in Flint, Michigan, and the water was not <laughs> was advertised to be. <laughs> he's he's born with quote unquote defects. Uh, tell me about Baby Beast. He's so cute. <laughs> yes, he. You know, I remember when I first read that because I actually read that many many years ago the first time. Um, and he is he's adorable. He's got these giant ham feet and ham hands. You know, he was just, you know, and they're still like, well, look at this guy, but they're still enthralled with him. 
<laughs> he holds just... his bottle with his giant feet and sucks on. He punches his uncle in the face when he's like, hey, coochie coop. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's cute. <laughs> right. So they're just like, right away, they're like, well, he's special, but they don't really make it sound like a bad thing. But you know something's coming. <laughs> well, but then I don't I don't know if any of our listeners, Regina and I both have children, but if you have an AD, ADD child, I don't, but I have nephews that are ADD and they're all over the place. And this is especially Edna's life in the next few years. You just know it. Beast is climbing up walls. He's chasing things down. He's taking apart shit at school, <laughs> uh, disassembling things. Uh, he, he can't figure out how to rein his strength and he's always hurting people. Uh, and she's just constantly exasperated, but also really takes responsibility for him. And Edna's story up to this point is the most fascinating thing, more than Norton's for me. She she got moved to this town kind of where she didn't want to be. This awful thing happened to her husband. And uh, we see that very quick line of find a new job or a new wife. Then she's pregnant and the child is not what it was promised to be either. We'll get there in a minute, but uh, she gets kidnapped <laughs> and then they move to a farm and live in this little tiny place uh, where they're just building the best life they can for their kid. So th this idea of her uh, rebounding from trauma after trauma is the most compelling part of this character for me because her life is not what she signed up for. Uh, right. And that like very 50s mentality of it's supposed to be this way is really <laughs> interesting to me. Uh, you don't get a lot of insight into her relationship with her husband, but you do get that insight with her son. And she seems to be kind of a character in her own story. Like she doesn't get to drive the drive the bus, you know? Right. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, when we look at gender roles, we kind of see how women almost always are required to carry the load in the relationships. And this is very clear in Edna's story. And, you know, so she pops out with the, you know, new job or new wife. And I think that that was a really wonderful way of giving her some type of agency because, you know, her husband is like, shoot, well, I don't want to lose the wife. She's pretty awesome. She can probably cook a mean bun cake, you know? <laughs> um and that but, hourglass figure <laughs> <laughs> you know and then she has this child and this child is not what she was expecting and has needs that she had never even considered and so she kind of has to figure out how do I raise this child and she's raising kind of an I don't want to say a vacuum but we don't really know anything about their extended family so she's by herself yeah and like way way back in the day when um uh, america was being settled by the new call you know by the colonists that had come and all of that there were so many women that were kind of out on the prairie and they straight up committed suicide and so this story that we get from edna is a little bit like that in my opinion that you know she's she's in this little area and like you said it's very desolate and she's got to figure it out. How do I have a life for myself? I don't have any family here. You know, I don't have any touchstones here. I'm with this man that I love. Um, What do I do with myself? Yeah, <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, and so she has to forge something for herself that's completely separate from probably anything that she was expecting. And then she has to start over yet again. And as an adult, it is really, really hard when you move to start over and like create a new community for yourself and let alone have this child that is just running around terrorizing the neighborhood 
<laughs> well, and like so many women, she then becomes defined by her motherhood, uh, taking refuge right. in her kid. And her kid has giant feet and giant hands and he climbs on walls and he's super strong and he's hurting people and he's taking shit apart at school. <laughs> it's a lot to keep up with. And you you get the idea. Uh, Reg Regina and I had a brief text exchange where she's like, I'm just picturing her running after him and trying to help. And I'm, I'm like, I picture her thinking about running after him, but instead like having a drink of whiskey, because what's the point? This kid never listens. And, like even, even that interpretation of her is really fascinating to me. Um, we see this this next part of the story explored both in uh, these, these backups we've been talking about, but also in X-Men Origins Beast Number 1, which is an issue I did on my show with Danny Lore, if you're interested. Uh, there's a story about this awful villain, and I have to say it this way every time, the Conquistador, who, but we, we laugh in the show. We're like, he thinks he knows how to say it, but he actually introduces himself as the Conquistador, like... <laughs> he dresses like uh like an old soldier and he wants beast to he sees beast playing in a football game and he wants him to steal a nuclear device for him from his dad's plant and so he kidnaps the mccoys and then he beast has to save them i mean that's kind of where we're getting at the experience of being kidnapped here is the one that's that's most uh crucial to me because it's the first example we see in the comics in some ways of if you are a mutant, something bad might happen to you, but it might also happen to your parents. And so the, these characters have been uh, tied up. Prior to that, we see them kind of as the football mom and dad. They're throwing the party for their kid. They're encouraging him to hang out with cute girls. Uh, they're, they're having family visit. There, there's a cute moment in, um, in the Origins issue where... Uh, Edna laughs with Beast about like how she had to keep her country western habit a secret from her husband until they were married, which is super cute. Uh, and and it's the you get this kind of snapshot of a family life, and then Professor X shows up and erases their memories. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, Beast might be the worst, but he gets it from a surrogate father. <laughs> what are your thoughts on the con conquistador? Oh, that was. That was an interesting bit. Um, and I agree with you. You know, we, we now we know just by association, mutants are dangerous. You know, like that's ultimately where the story ends up is, you know, if you have a connection, then you're screwed and you don't have powers to try to, you know, get away from like these raving lunatic characters. <laughs> so you just gotta have to survive it or not survive it. Um, but yeah, um, this is really when we kind of see Beast's relationship with his mom specifically, I think. Um, again, there's this idea of protecting, right? Um, but I think that Edna, given half a chance, let her have a tool. She's going to figure out a way to get out of it herself. Well, yeah, she's she's going to do what it takes. We're, we're going to see more flashbacks to his childhood later on, where we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the, this concept I mentioned of like your family might get hurt if you're a mutant. For Teenage Beast, who we want to assume is just a very curious, ADD, but kind person, uh, this, uh, this memory of seeing his mom and dad get taken and tied up uh, is probably pretty profound for a character when you consider the shaping of trauma over time. And then we have Xavier coming in and saying, unless you come with me and let me erase your parents' minds, they are in danger, which is actually true. And we saw that in a lot of these 60s stories. Iceman's 
uh, parents, uh, their home was being stormed by a mob that wanted to harm him for being a mutant. And again, Xavier erased the minds. Uh, Jean Grey experienced the death of Annie and, and Xavier had to erase their minds. Uh, <laughs> so he's there, there's a certain level of understanding I have for that decision by Xavier in that he thinks he's doing what it is crucially necessary in order to protect these kids. Uh, people from my show know I'm very critical of Xavier most of the time, but I do get this. But the idea of them forgetting who their son is so that they can have a more peaceful life is very, very sad. It's Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You know, because they they don't not remember him. And <laughs> they just don't remember he's a mutant. They don't remember right. any of this stuff. Imagine right. imagine being I know uh you and I have both been involved in raising difficult children sometimes. Yes. <laughs> and imagine having the memories of those difficulties erased. Uh you're suddenly with this kid that has been so complex and so much of your identity has been involved. What does that do to someone's psychology when that is taken away? The memory of the hard parts, you know? You know, and and maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment <laughs> because I wouldn't change any of it because those hard parts made the wonderful parts that much better. Well, and it's what makes our kids special and it will yes. make us love them and fight for them so hard. Absolutely. Yes, because when you think about your child being challenged or having a challenge and then how do you help them overcome it? Because ultimately you want them to be able to overcome it independently, but with your support so that they can claim agency. And so you have this whole, all of this is just taken away. Yeah. All that's to me, that is just so horrifying. There's, there's, again, a lot to explore uh, from a writing perspective. The Beast parents are gone for a long time. We do know that at some point they got their memories back. And then we come to 1982, which is my favorite appearance of theirs, Marvel Team Up number 124. Now, the Patreon episode that comes out just before this one, Regina, is on the character Professor Power, who's the villain in this episode, in this issue. <laughs> and I did it with J.M. DeMatteis, who wrote this issue. And we talk a little bit about uh, Beast and his mom there. So listeners, go back and check that out if you'd like to learn more uh, about that conversation. Uh, tell me about uh, Marvel Team Up 124. Had you read this before? Um, I think I did many, many years ago, like many years ago, because <laughs> when I was reading it, I was like, I think I've, I think I've read this before, um, because I, I'm the kind of person that reads everything that I can get my hands on, and then I've forgotten more than I could ever possibly remember, Yeah, yeah. but it was really, for me, it was really a great book, so he has become an Avenger and he's blue and furry. And I think this is the first time they actually see him that way. It's right? the first time we see them see him at all. Right. I mean, he even notes, I haven't seen my parents in years. You get the idea. This is the first time he's met them since he's turned blue and furry, which is right. intense already. I'm like, do you, do you not call your mom? Like you didn't call her and say, you know, mom, I need to tell you something awful has happened, but it's wonderful. And I don't want you to freak out. 
and I'll send you pictures. <laughs> this is such a guy thing though. Like when, when my kids call, they don't call my husband. They call me because I'm mom. And I'm like, talk to your father, call your father and tell <laughs> what you're telling me and have a relationship. But they just want to play telephone where they just call me and relay it to dad. And I'm like, no, that's not how relationships work. And I want you to call each other. So apparently he's not calling. He's not writing. He's just at some point reached out to them like, hey, I'm going to pick you up at the airport. Let's have a visit. So they don't know until now. He comes to the airport. He's really, really nervous. He's making Vera nervous. He is bouncing up and down and off the walls. And Imagine being Vera. Like, God damn it. You're blue and right, free already. Can you just sit down? <laughs> So they show up and they are just like, hold the phone. What is going on here? Norton goes, let's have a look at you. Hmm. You're a lot more handsome than you appeared in those TV pictures with the Avengers. But <laughs> tell me, have you ever considered electrolysis? <laughs> that is so hilarious. I was just like, that's such a dad thing to say. <laughs> like instead of saying, you know, I like that shade of blue. <laughs> <laughs> but Edna is just so, she's just so overwhelmed and shocked and she doesn't know what to say so she just kind of says nothing mm -hmm. and you know I think about that and I'm just like well that had to be hurtful mm -hmm. <laughs> you know like even though Beast totally brought this on himself has to mom, be hurtful. Mom, mom do you love me mom and she yeah she can't she can't yeah, speak. she can't even say anything um and then they go out to eat to, and to flavors of Bombay flavors of Bombay <laughs> and he reaches out to touch her and she's like, you freak, don't freaking touch me. And I'm like, whoa, mom. She, she calls him a disgusting freak. Yes. And I'm like, this, no, no, please don't say that to your babe. Oh my God. It's hurting my heart to just even talk. Because <laughs> I just can't imagine saying that to my child. But she's, she's not bonded to this guy. This is okay. not her son. As far as she's concerned, she's just like, this is not my guy. I don't recognize anything about him. I don't, I can't see his face because it's all covered in fur, you know? So like, I get it, but I, but Edna, you need, you need some Valium, babe. <laughs> <laughs> and she says he's a disgrace and a horror. And I'm really in my feelings at this point. Yep. She runs you know. out crying and like, it's, it's, it's an intense scene. And I just go to Vera. Vera's going to meet the boyfriend's parents. And this is where it goes first. Ooh, but we, we've, I'll talk about Vera more later. <laughs> but yeah, so she's she's not having a very good reaction. And then dad is like, you know what? We were sick with worry. And then I, I related to Norton so hard when he starts talking about that. He's like, you know, we were so worried because we knew that you, you know, had had this exposure to radiation because of my work. And then when you were born, you were different, but we wanted you to have an average life. We didn't, you know, we didn't want you to have to suffer for any hardships. And he, he specifically says your mother tried to ignore that you were different. Like, yes, she wanted and you I to think, have a normal, happy life. Yeah, I think that a lot of times that is the reaction to parents or from parents that have children who are neurodivergent or who have some type of disability or have some type of impairment that they're not ready for. Or even who are gay. 
Right. Or I don't yeah. want my kid to have to suffer. Yeah. It's right. A- right. And, you know, or, you know, and I'm just going to say it, even biracial parents, you know, they, they have these children and you don't ever know what you're going to get. <laughs> and now I have to deal with hair. I have to deal with things culturally that you're exposed to that I'm not exposed to because I'm not viewed the same way that you're viewed. And so you have all of these things and you just try to ignore it and you, you can't, these are things that make us who we are. There's a key moment during uh, Norton's speech here that gives us a lot of insight into beasts psychology, which is a fascinating thing. He very, he very softly says, you know, your mom pretended you were, weren't a freak, basically. (laughs) And he says, you did your best to please her. You got good grades. You excelled in sports. Uh, He, he kind of is giving us a weird insight into Hank as part of the reason Hank overachieves is because his mom didn't see him. And that's, that is something we can understand on a very deep level. Now, of course, he's, brought that into full narcissism and insanity but (laughs) it's an interesting insight into his character this idea because we can all relate to that when we think of our own parents we can all think of how we didn't measure up and wanted their attention uh so that that's a fascinating insight into hank's psychology for me and do you think that and i may i know we're talking about a fictional character but i really feel like this kind of informs his character because he spent so many of his formative years he can't conform but he's trying And so now that he's an adult, he's like, you know what? It's all about me now because I spent so much of my time trying to be something I wasn't. And now I'm just going to lean fully in to what I want and what I think is right and what I think is best. And it just makes me sad. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's there's something so fascinating about the complexity of that for me. Uh, So we see Beast rush after his mom and he's thinking, and again, he occasionally is empathetic for a few seconds. He says, poor mom, he's thinking, I've taken time out to wallow in my own self-pity over the years, but I never once considered what it was like for her. Being the parent of a mutant, especially a conspicuous one like me, must be just as bad as being the mutant. You must, or you become as much of an outcast as your child, which is such a harsh way of doing it. Beast has always been very self-hating, though. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Professor Power attacks. Uh, who's Professor Power? <laughs> you know, he just kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> he's a crazy man. J.M. DeMatteis was using him in several stories, even in Marvel Team Up. He's a crazy guy that Professor X screwed over, and now he wants to kill Beast to get revenge. That's basically all you need to know. And who wouldn't? <laughs> like, I have sympathy for you, Professor, because I get it. It's a twisted story. Uh, he 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 has a son in a coma, and he bring he manipulates Xavier to coming in to try to fix his son's mind. But Xavier either can't do it or pretends that he couldn't do it and basically kills this kid. Like, he makes him brain dead. Like, sorry. Uh, and so Power wants revenge. And you don't know how, I don't know, we want to assume it's not Xavier's fault. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's an interesting story as well. Um, uh, so Professor Power attacks. And how does Edna react when uh, Beast and Spider-Man are nearly defeated? She snaps to her senses and she's just like, oh my God, you know what? What was I even thinking? This is still my son. And I got to do what I got to do as his mother to to reach out to him and help protect him. And you're not going to take him away from me. This is my baby. 
you can't have him. And I'm like, but is she really thinking if I brought him into this world, I'm going to be the one that takes him out when I'm good and damn right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I definitely was just like, I, you know, I can understand where maybe your child has hurt you in some way, even though it's not your burden to carry. And then somebody else tries to hurt them and you're like, oh, hell no. Now I now now Mama Bear is coming out and I'm going to come out and, you know, protect my child. Well, and she's doing it to a man that's throwing fucking cars around. Uh, right. But listen to her speech. And this is the I love you, but speech. And I love I love Edna. I really <laughs> do. But this is rough for me. Uh, she goes, he's my son, my son. Maybe he hasn't become the adult I dreamed he'd be, but that doesn't change the fact that he's my flesh and blood, that I gave him life. I don't know if you can understand what it means to be a parent, to have a child whose life is bound to yours forever, but if you can understand, please. And uh, Professor Power's like, I do fucking know. And you have, <laughs> you have warmed my heart, woman. And he, uh, he flies away and leaves them be. Uh, what are your thoughts on this speech at this moment as uh, Edna and Hank finally embrace? We have a family again, Norton yeah, says. Like, you you don't have a family again because your family was never broken. <laughs> like, like, you were always family and you just, you had a bad moment. And I almost love that speech except for the butt. You didn't have to say the butt, Edna. You've got enough butt for everybody. But you don't he have to put the butt straight, there. But I will love him anyway. There's an element of that. Uh, but there's a lot There's a lot put into this relationship uh, that you can read into. It's a, uh, Do you feel for her here or are you frustrated by her more? It's kind both. of 50-50 in this issue. Yeah, it's, it's definitely both because I can definitely understand when your child has disappointed you. Um, you know, my my both of my sons are adults now. Um, and in their early adulthood, which is crazy because you're like 32, but go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, my oldest son really was, you know, just tooling around for a while and, and, you know, he, he disappointed me. Um, but at the same time I was right there because I'm not going to get into it because it's his business and not my business. <laughs> But, you know, I was right there like, you know what, back up off my kid. And the fact that you even thought about allowing my kid to be harmed, oh, I'm coming for you. So now I have this grudge against another family member. <laughs> and it's been, oh, shoot, seven years, eight years. I'm not letting it go because that's my baby. That is my baby. And I spent years and years doing what I could to make sure he survived to adulthood and I'll be damned if anybody else takes him out of this world. <laughs> uh, we haven't talked as much about Norton, which is fine. He's heroic. He's a little impetuous. We get some things about him, but he's very much coming across as the, yeah, I know your mom just called you a disgusting freak, but just try to give her the benefit of the doubt. She's had a rough day. You're like, he's got a little of that like country dad energy about him. Yeah. Uh, but I, I prefer Edna to Norton. Yeah, he's, um, you know, he's surprisingly laid back. He's just like, I just want peace. I just, you know, he's not even a beer drinker, but he's just like, you know what? I just want a Coke and like a bag of chips and a sandwich. And I just want to kick back in my chair and be happy. And if he you have a, to just keep it down. He wants a piece of straw in his mouth and a hat, <laughs> and a puppy, like or a dog curled up at his feet as he watches. Yeah. I, you I'm, know, he's got the farmer energy. Yeah, I'm going to get my tractor in the morning. And you guys just chill out. So nobody's attracted to the noise and breaks my tractor and it's going to be fine. <laughs> Uh, we see the McCoys very briefly in a flashback to Hank leaving for prom with Jennifer Niles in Marvel Comics Presents 86. 
And then we get their next and kind of their last really big appearance, uh, X-Men Unlimited number 10. This was a book that ran in the mid 90s where they would do longer form X-Men stories like 48 to 64 pages, uh, a little bit more epic, especially the, the first 20 issues or so of this book are really great. There's a lot of really quality material, gorgeous covers. Uh, the Age of Apocalypse has ended, and the Dark Beast that we referenced earlier has come to our reality, and he is uh, posing, it's very like, I remember there's a plot line in the late 90s, back when my sisters used to watch All My Children, I had to watch it with them, because it was, the, we only had one TV, and it was every day after school, and there was a plot line where the character Natalie gets kidnapped by her twin sister Janet, and then Janet poses as Natalie in her life for like a year. She's married to her husband. Nobody can tell the difference. She's I remember that. And do you remember? And Natalie's trapped in a cave and you're like, where yeah. did she get out? This is that story, but in the X-Men. The Dark Beast is replacing Beast uh, and uh, keeps him locked in a cave and like pretends he's the Beast. Uh, tell me about X-Men Unlimited number 10, Regina. So... Dark Beast is like, okay, I got to do some recon so I can successfully replace this Hank fella. <laughs> so he goes <laughs> to visit um, his parents um, in Dunphy, Illinois. Well, and I got to say about Dark Beast very quickly. We'll do more psychology on this guy. This guy is <laughs> evil and dark and messy, but he grew up in the fucking age of apocalypse where it's a wasteland. And imagine coming to this world and seeing this like soft human version of you <laughs> who loves humans. And uh, again, we'll do it. We'll do more Dark Beast focused stuff. But this character's perspective on our reality is wild. Yes. And he kind of goes to this very bucolic area. You know, there's just lots of like, farmland and you know if you've ever been to Illinois yeah it's like that <laughs> I've had the occasion to drive through it and okay that's enough of that <laughs> so then he you know he's doing his recon he's finding out more about Hank's childhood and Hank was a very smart kid and we've already known that and he makes the principal makes this reference I don't know if it's because of his genes or what <laughs> But, but this boy is special and he's misdirecting his specialness <laughs> you know um he's the, he, the, the, the the principal says we we always had a problem finding a limit to his delightful inquisitiveness yes and he reads everything <laughs> and then he reads more and i was like are you talking about me wait a minute because i read the back of the shampoo bottle like i read literally everything <laughs> So, yeah, and Norton is like, wait, so is this a problem? Because, like, don't we send our kids to school to learn? Like, they come to school to learn. <laughs> and the principal says, well, it's because he doesn't really have limits. He finds something, and then he just goes whole hog. <laughs> he, he pushes it as far as he can possibly fucking go. And yeah, and that's been kind of a hallmark of his character. And we've referenced, you know, what he's been doing now. And there are fans who say, well, I can't believe it, you know, that they assassinated his character like this. And I'm like, no, no, no. This has been who he has been since his inception. Mm -hmm. And we have seen this build slowly, slowly, slowly. But we have had multiple glimpses of who he really is all along. Mm -hmm. 
So then they find him tearing apart a school bus, the engine block <laughs> of the school bus. The Scottish janitor. <laughs> and he's just doing his beast thing. He's like jumping around. I mean, can you imagine though, like this big giant guy, he's super smart. He's just like hopping around like a frog, <laughs> like a supersized frog. That's got to be unnerving. Poor Edna. <laughs> yes. Um, he just, he's been tearing apart the the equipment in the school and the boiler room just he's just being so extra like your, hey, your accent comes out when you say bo- boiler the boiler <laughs> <laughs> it does come out at the oddest time <laughs> and then we flash back to the present where dark beast is questioning this principal that we saw in the flashback uh and then kills him <laughs> he's going he's going oh. and interviewing all these people from beast's life and killing them uh <laughs> And then he visits the McCoys. He he, he kills Hank, Hank's old girlfriend. That scene where she like breaks out in like gross boils and blisters is so horrific. Ugh. Yes. I mean, you know, I am obsessed with body horror because it's so horrible. <laughs> and yeah, I I watch a lot of like B-type horror movies. And yeah, this was definitely in that vein, like oh my God, how twisted is this going to get? And it just keeps going. That's one of the things in a horror movie that can really get me. When someone's skin starts to break out and they like, this festering disease, like, oof. That gets me. I can, zombies, fine. Cut off someone's <laughs> hand, I don't care. But you you cover them in boils and I'm like, in the corner. Did, did you watch Slither? I've never seen Slither. Oh my God, it's so good. And um, yeah, you yeah, it's a lot of body horror. It's, really kind of reminds me of this moment for my husband it's needles when when a needle comes out in a film he's like ah like it's, oh, it's yeah. funny we all have our little triggers uh yeah. but, but dark beast then goes to visit the mccoys and we get a flashback to beast in high school and we get more evidence of like his super genius and this is frankly to me this next scene is kind of the most insight we get into his relationship with his parents that's positive because they're embracing him for being different uh, tell tell me about this flashback if you'd like to talk about it. So yeah, so he pops out, scares the crap out of them, and <laughs> they're like, you know what? It's so good to see you. You know, and this kind of reminds me of my son. My son loves to hide around the corner and jump out and give me jump scares <laughs> literally every day. And you would think I would be used to it. I am not. <laughs> and he's like, what if I'm a robber? <laughs> like, well, I guess I'm gonna get robbed, son. <laughs> <laughs> But this just kind of reminded me, you know, of course, not Dark Beast, but, you know, he just, he does that. And so they have this same instant reaction, like, oh my God, you spooked your father. (laughs) But you know what? Come here, give me a hug. Like, come on into this quaint little beautiful farmhouse. So yeah, they, again, they, they live in this very bucolic area, this wonderful little house. Like it's just very cozy and it just looks like almost like a Norman Rockwell type painting you know just this same sense of family and warmth it's america's bread basket it is it (laughs) is um and edna is telling him all about her kitchen and this reminds me when my my oldest son comes home and i walk him around the house and i'm like look at the new plants i just (laughs) so like i'm definitely feeling this love that this little tight-knit family has with each other 
and uh norton is outside on his giant wood shopping machine and thinking about how hank gave him this machine and how much he loves it because what dad doesn't love a power tool i'm that dad apparently i love a power tool <laughs> but you know they're reminiscing about how hank has had too much time on his hands on occasion because he doesn't ever stop thinking he just thinks all the time but he you know norton is like you know something's not really right something ain't right about this boy <laughs> like he's he's hank but he but he ain't hank and he agrees to tell hank this almost stranger he's like yeah you know what but don't you do that you know your children come over and you talk about Christmas's past or yeah. remember that time at Thanksgiving. So it's not really weird. It's a little weird the way that it kind of <laughs> comes about. There's but, an intensity about yes. Dark Beast's questions. Yes, he's right. really pushing it. It's not coming about organically at all. <laughs> but this is not something out of the realm of what you do. You know, I've heard, I've told the story 5,000 times. What's 5,001? Sure, right? yeah. Let me actually read his speech here as, as Dark Beast is interviewing Noran about this. He goes back to the origin story one more time. Uh, it happened back when I was at the power plant. We were in a meltdown situation and some blamed fool went to stop it. That fool was me. And in five <laughs> minutes, I, I feel like I got to go Southern. And in five minutes, I was doused with a lifetime's worth of radiation. Of course, the docs kept that from me. They kept me, or they gave me a clean bill of health and sent me home and saved their double take for the day you were born. You had hands like hams, feet like gunboats, and you were the most beautiful baby your mother and I had ever seen. People aren't, they don't have Southern accents in Iowa. I just made that choice. <laughs> oh no, they do. Oh, so they I guess do. sometimes. Uh, you were clumsy at first and always a bookworm near as I could tell. Your smarts weren't a mutation. You just came by them naturally. Had to have been from your mom's side. I always said, in time you grew into the agility. So you got so you enjoyed romping around and around and around on the football field all over. You turned a curse into an advantage and had me thinking a thousand times, that's my boy. And Darkby says, even after I mutated into this form, and he says, never seen you this curious about it. I'll admit we were surprised, shocked it didn't bother you more, but it didn't keep you out of the Avengers or that other group you were with for a while. What were they called? Uh, I have no idea. Oh, sure you do. It's the Defenders. <laughs> <laughs> not have any idea <laughs> well, he doesn't know this history uh anyway blue fur didn't stop you from making something of yourself i'm glad you never blamed me for the way you are that kind of answer your question that's all about i needed to know he is good because i'm here to tell you no matter how you turned out whatever turn your life might have taken your parents will always love you and uh what is dark beast doing in this moment <laughs> it's just he's getting ready to kill dad he's just like all right i'm fucking done with you He's got an axe in his hand. Yeah, he's he's ready to go, but he he changes his mind, and so now I'm like, well, what was your relationship with your parents? Oh, this was in the world where mutants were like using humans as slaves and genetic fodder. So I don't right. have much of a good relationship. Right. So, but like, at what point was he taken from his parents? Was it you know at birth? Was it later? Like. Xavier, you know, erased, to know. Xavier erased their minds. Imagine what Apocalypse did to them in this world. <laughs> Christ, that was just horrifying. But yeah, it, he he's like, oh, okay, I'm ready to kill this dude. He's got his axe and he's ready to go, but he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, 
he he leaves and leaves them alive because his dad said we love you i really enjoy this flashback the issue goes on from there and it's really interesting and there's a beast versus dark beast with beast winning it's pretty art but this flashback to the mccoys is where we'll stop uh with our review there uh, and we learn a lot about them this this farm iowa home life uh loving wonderful parents who are just happy to see their kid come home uh not knowing he's about to behead them <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's really interesting. Uh, do you have any thoughts uh, in conclusion on that section? You know, I I feel like this is a stronger and a better representation of who they really are. Like this whole scene with, you know, Edna doing the butt. No, we're not going to do the butt, Edna. We love, our, we love our sons and we love our children. Whatever and whoever they are, we raise them. We love them. They're ours. We made memories with these children. We, you know, we went through some hardships and heartaches because nobody, nobody can hurt you like a child. Nobody. Yeah. Absolutely fucking nobody. They will break your heart and break you into pieces a thousand times. And we still love them. And uh, I just. You said, uh, you said we don't do the butt, but Edna, in the privacy of your bedroom with your husband, you can do the butt all you want. You can do it on the dance floor too, but we're not doing it with our kids, okay? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I just love that we we leave them in that moment where dad is like, you know what? We love you, son. Because I don't think we see enough portrayals of fathers saying, I love you to their son. Yeah. Saying, we love you to their son. And to just accept them. And, you know, even though he feels like something's a little off, he's like, sure, let's talk about it again. We'll, 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 we'll go over it, you know? And you can tell when he's talking to him, I don't know, maybe it was just me. Cause I read the story when it was first published. Um, you know, I, I felt happy. I was like, this yeah. is, you know, this is, this is a dad. This is a dad who loves his kid. And they and could have died, but they lived. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's So I loved we, it so much. There was also a title in the 90s called Uncanny Origins that would use kind of a cartoony style to give characters backstories. We get one of those about Beast in Uncanny Origins number six, but it kind of retreads the same ground we've already covered with like very, uh, very cartoony art. Uh, it's fun. And then we have X-Men Unlimited 14. And I, I didn't like this issue as much. It's good, uh, but in comparison to the one we just talked about, uh, th this one paled a little to me. Uh, we see Beast bring his teammates home, Storm, Gambit, Joseph, Artie, Leech, and Franklin Richards, because this is during Onslaught and he's living with the X-Men. Uh, Edna makes them all pancakes. Norton gives them a ride on the tractor. Uh, Beast gives his mom a big hug. Uh, she talks about how helpless they've been feeling with all the bad news about mutants lately, which is cute. That shows a strong bond in their relationship. Uh, the tractor, which they've named Baby Elsie, which I love, uh, stalls and Gambit's helping fix it. But then uh, uh, they are attacked. Uh, Beast and Storm and Gambit are all handling uh, this attack. The, uh, the, the mm, I'm trying to be succinct. The, the pastures and the farmland on the nearby land uh, have been attacked by a mutant-hating locals led by uh, a guy named George, uh, excuse me, Grange Jansen, which is such a farm name, uh, <laughs> who's like a neighbor from down the road. Uh, and uh, they're closing in with guns because there's mutants on the property. And uh, one of them fucking 
wait, wait excuse me. I'll edit this section out. Uh, one of them, uh, I, I had a weird typo there. That <laughs> threw me off. Uh, one of them fucking sh shoots Storm out of the sky and they're treating Storm's wounds and they go to protect the children from the local bigots. Uh, Norton and Edna step in to protect the little kids, Leech and Artie and Franklin. Uh, Norton's right in front of them. You're going to shoot my wife and kid now, Grange? Maybe you could all go after the little, little Timmy Brennan next. He looks pretty much strange since losing two fingers in that hay pulley accident last year, remember? And Mac there has a bit of a stutter, ain't you noticed? An old teach shale always dresses more and a mite funny for Sunday services now I think about it. Never mind that nephew of yours, Jansen, with the earring and all that hair. Pretty sure he, uh bet he's dancing to a different tune already if you catch my... Basically, you know, all kids are different. And what, if you kill us, you'll have to kill all of them. And he says, this is devil's talk, McCoy. Devil's talk from demons infesting our town, infecting our minds. And any of you cowards who ain't with me against these monsters are going down with them. Uh, but the mob turns against him and the police come and things end okay. Uh, what are your <laughs> thoughts on this story? I wish I liked it more. <laughs> you know, I actually really love this story because it's kind of like when... You have a child that, you know, doesn't conform. And then they bring home their friends that also don't conform. <laughs> and somebody makes a threat on their friends. And then you step up like, look, motherfucker, uh, I'm going to take you down. Even though that, that other kid is not my kid, my kid loves that kid. So I love that kid. So I'm going to fuck you up because now this is part of my family too. So for that reason, I I really, really love this speech that he gives, even though it's a little offensive. <laughs> like, yeah, the, and I think that's kind of what throws me off. This is interesting because we're going to cover a similar batch of stories about Lucinda Guthrie in that episode, where she rises to defend the mutant kids from the local bigoted townspeople. Uh, there's something about this. It's sticking in my crown. I'm trying to chew it out as we talk uh, about this. This is late 90s. But that whole speech of uh, if you kill my gay son, you'll also have to kill that black kid and that kid with the stutter and all those, uh, that old argument of all differences being the same, I think is what bothers me. It, it feels so cliche, but for the late 90s, the mutant energy, uh, like the, the analogy there makes sense. Okay, okay, I like it. I changed my mind. <laughs> I mean, when you read it, it it's offensive at especially that last line that he delivers it, it it's offensive but it's the intention behind it and the right. intention behind it is you know what um we all have a little something different about us and fuck you for making a big deal out of it sure. and you've got this fucking gun you think that makes you a man but i'm a man because i'm standing up for my family and you're just being a bitch <laughs> like you know <laughs> and that's kind of how I read it, especially because, you know, like Artie and Leech, they don't even look human. Like, you know, they they are definitely freaks, right? And for Beast's parents to say, you know what? I'm going to defend these kids with my life too. That's huge. Yeah, yeah. You know? We draw this we draw this as a parallel to the Drakes as well, because Bobby Drake's dad hated him for being a mutant for so long and then showed up at like uh if you remember that story where like Graydon Creed's running for president and like Bobby's dad shows up to stand up for mutants, like there's that kind of redemption moment. 
Uh, okay, I like this story. It's just, I think it was that speech that really got to me. That that idea of crossing comparisons uh, always, always bugs me. Um, and then we get Merry Xmas Holiday Special number one from uh, 2016. This is a really interesting issue. It's a bunch of people who've all been hired to do just a one-page story. And it, they run page to page to page. And it, it, you... It's, it's not easy to do a lot in one page uh, when you're writing, but it's really beautiful. Uh, the Beast story is by Rainbow Rowell of She-Hulk and uh, Runaways fame. I love her writing. Uh, Beast goes home for Christmas and he has mutated yet again. He's dressed in a suit. Uh, he's in his bedroom and looking at pictures of his old life. And all of this is all in one page in speech bubbles kind of happening behind him. Uh, will you read Edna and I'll read Norton here in this conversation? Okay. He looks good, doesn't he? He looks different. But he looks healthy, right? I don't know, Edna. Every time he comes home, he looks like a different person. That's how it is for everyone with kids, Norton. They're never the same person twice. Aunt Polly asked him what happened to his kitty cat nose. <laughs> well, Aunt Polly never did have a look of sense. I hoped he might bring someone home for Christmas this year. I hate to think of him alone. You know he's never alone. He's got all his ex-people. That's not the same and you know it. I guess I always thought we'd have grandchildren by now. Furry blue ones? Norton! <laughs> and then they hey, call Hank in for church. <laughs> Hurry up, we'll be late for church. God, this page is wonderful. That idea of like listening to your parents banter in the next room about your appearance. Because it's kind of like the guy coming home with an earring or a ponytail, but he he's a fucking blue monster. <laughs> uh, I, love, I love this page. I got to agree with Aunt Polly, though, because what did happen to that kitty cat? <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, he just he, he changes again. He, little morphe blue guy yeah and you know it's interesting because throughout this conversation we've consistently seen norton being the one that is really super supportive mm -hmm. and edna's the one that's kind of been like fuck something's wrong <laughs> and in this one it's flipped so i just wonder like intentionally like is this norton just finally speaking on his own discomfort because you know a lot of old older men don't talk about their feelings. It just, they're not going to say it. And he's finally at a point where he can say it. And Edna's the one saying, oh, honey, it's it's going to be all right. <laughs> I uh, I never knew my dad's parents very well, but my mom's parents, uh, who uh, they're, they're both gone now, uh, had this relationship where they kind of bickered all the time, but it was never very serious. And they called each other mom and dad. So I'm totally picturing this scene makes me think of like sitting in the living room and hearing like, you made pancakes yesterday. And she's like, well, you wore that same shirt yesterday, Dad. <laughs> and like, they just had this kind of grumpy energy about them. Uh, he was he was diabetic and she was always just writing him and he would always eat sugar anyway. And he'd call her woman when he was exasperated. Like this scene uh, from this page totally makes me smile and think of my grandparents. Same uh, energy for sure. So that's it for the McCoys. One of the big questions I like to ask when we take these obscure characters is what's the story that we're waiting for now? Now that we've seen these guys, I don't need another flashback to the time he saved the world from the nuclear reactor, but I wouldn't mind seeing it explored more. Um, what's the story we need for Norton and Edna? 
I need Edna to know what her son's been up to. And I want to see her take him to task for it. And I want him to cry. <laughs> I want him to feel shame for disappointing his mother. <laughs> because I think a lot of us still, you know, even when we're adults, we don't want to disappoint our parents, right? Like, even though we're doing our own thing and we know we're probably going to disappoint them, we don't really want to, especially if we have good parents. I'm not talking about if your parents are trash. <laughs> here's, here's, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, but I really wonder what her reaction would be and then what his reaction to her reaction would be. Yeah. Here's the story. It's a one page story. Beast is in jail or in the pit or whatever. And uh, his name has gone out to the public as the mutant who did all these things, which of course is going to strengthen Orcus's cause, right? Because here's this mutant who committed genocide. His crimes are publicly revealed. And it's a one panel image of a reporter trying to interview Edna at her home. And she says something like, I have no son and closes the door. And Beast is then, we then go to the next panel where Beast is in his cell, seeing this from his mother. And like a single tear goes down his cheek. It's a one page story and it is everything we need. That's what I need. You know, and you know, I don't, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I know that um, when we think about our relationships with our children and what we hope for our children, and then sometimes our children are not the best people. Sometimes we're not the best people. Even, he um, even Henry Kissinger had a mom. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but you know, it just, you know, and this is a trigger warning for anybody um, who might've been affected by such a terrible event, but this makes me think about, um, you know, some of the first school shooters yeah. and, and their mothers because they were ostracized. Their mothers were ostracized. And anyone who has been, ever had a child commit murder goes through. Right, this. right. And then what do you do when it's your child that has done this really, really terrible thing? And do you give up on them? Do you forgive them? Are you able to move past that? Can you say, even though you've done this horrible thing, I still love you? Mm. And I think about that a lot. Regina and Gibbons, I made I'm a tearing up. <laughs> well, I made a documentary called Doc Valley about a man named Gordon Church who was horribly tortured, raped, and murdered for being gay back in 1988. And there's two people that killed him. The man who was the primary aggressor is a man named Michael Archuleta who is on death row in Utah. And I wasn't eligible to interview Michael because he's on death row and he's appealing his case. But I did interview the other killer and it was one of the most intense experiences of my life. And you see it in the film if you ever go watch it because I'm in the movie. But I did get to interview uh, Stella Archuleta who was the mother of Michael. And she died three months after I interviewed her. But she was the patron saint of motherhood. She raised four generations of children this kid was adopted. He went on to torture and kill someone. And she gives a big speech in my film about how you got to love your kids even when they do something bad. She was, I will never understand what happened, but I will love him till the day I die. And there's all these letters on the wall that he's written her from jail. And she is just the loveliest, most wonderful person. I don't know if that's Edna McCoy. <laughs> you know, she's kind of a boss babe, right? Um <laughs> But she spent so long kind of not accepting him that even if he's done something monstrous, would she go back to that? Or would she say, you know what, I've invested 
this much of my life and energy into finally loving my child for who they are? And can I turn away now? Look at this like intense emotional discussion <laughs> we're having about a potential story that will never be told. <laughs> I know, but you know, and I'm getting tearful, but you know, every time I see Hank doing something, I think about Edna. I love Edna so much, even though she's not always right, but she does love her son. And I think about her and I'm like, your mama would shake the shit out of you if she knew what you were doing. And listeners, you all know how we feel. These characters that we love really affect us in a way that we spend an hour and 40 minutes <laughs> talking about even though they've only appeared 10 times. Right. <laughs> God, I love having this show. It's so fun. Uh, I uh, uh, enjoy and respect you so much, my friend. I think you are an incredible person, an incredible mother, and a really entertaining podcast host. Uh, so it's really fun to hang out with you. It's been a long time. Thank you. Um, we're going to put this out on April 26th on the Patreon. We'll release it on the main channel a few months later. But uh, tell people where they can find you online and what would you like to plug? Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter on my semi-personal page, The Red Queen of X. Um, I go on a lot of rants on Twitter. On Instagram, I usually show pictures of plants or cats or <laughs> something completely not X-related. <laughs> Um, you can find me and my co-host Dylan on our podcast on just about any podcast um, channel that you utilize at the House of X podcast. Um, we are going to be at the Uncanny Experience in Minneapolis in September. I so will also be there. Yes, I would love to see all of your fans and guests show up and show love to the X community. Um, we have a lot of stuff planned. We've got some classes for, you know, the junior classmen, the upperclassmen <laughs> at Xavier's faux mansion. <laughs> um, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, Lenore Zan, who was the voice of Rogue from the animated series, will be there. She's always a hoot. She's yeah, been... She was just on my show. We had a yes. great time. She is such a just she's just an amazing person. Um, she's had a wonderful, incredible career. Who would have ever thought the voice of Rogue would be a politician in real life, you know? So she's done some superheroing of her own. Um, Chris Claremont will be there, of course. Um, there's going to be several guests. We're going to have a ton of cosplayers. So please show up in your cosplay. Um, but that will be my first sort of um, not really convention experience, but public experience. <laughs> I'm a homebody. I don't leave the house. <laughs> This is going to be a big deal for me. I'm so looking forward to meeting you in person and to having a margarita or something together and just shooting the shit and talking about our children. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> it's going to be wonderful. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you guys can find Grey Milk and PP Lake podcast on Twitter, Grey Milk and underscore lane on Instagram. Uh, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but Regina and I are friends. Um, uh, on my show, uh, the next Patreon after this is going to feature the character Lifeguard from the Extreme X-Men series, uh, assuming the schedule works out. Uh, and then I've got a lot of, re lot of really fun stuff uh, coming up with some really unexpected people. It's going to be great. Uh, Dylan and I are hanging out soon, uh, and we're going to do the character Thorn, the, uh, yes. the sister of Farrell, which will be wonderful as well. <laughs> He's very excited about that. So. I'm, I'm really excited too. Farrell's uh, hilarious. When you read her early, she's like, God, she's so funny. It's, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, the next uh, the next uh, show out on my main channel is uh, we're beginning X-Men The Hidden Years. Uh, we've got the first issue. 
And uh, my guests on that episode are Jason Liebig, who was the editor on that book, and Gregory Wright, who was the colorist on that book. And we have a wild conversation about how awful Marvel in the 90s was. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, make sure to check that out. Uh, Regina Givens, thank you for your time and talents tonight. It's great to see you, my friend. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.